Prince remembered from the current. I just talked to Dwayne Tudal yesterday, and he had a really sweet quote that I thought was really appropriate. He said, the sound of 1999 is the sound of Prince and Peggy McCreary. Yeah, it's funny because I've been doing a lot of panels with the four females that, you know, the women that came after me. I worked with them for five years and was exhausted. I was so glad when Susan was coming in. It's like, oh, thank God. And my first impression of Susan is she won't be able to make it. She's too sweet, you know. And she hung in there for five years. And then the last, we, we were comparing because I got him when he was young and relatively unknown mm-hmm. and human. She got him when he was becoming that mega mogul. Right. She got him in those those years of a different person. Right. And then Sylvia Massey had him when he was like total rock star. Ah. And then Lisa had him when he was older and more mature and was more human in the sense that he had, you know, experienced that big peak mm. and he was, you know, he had been married and had lost a child, and so right. he was different. So it was interesting to realize that we had all experienced a different man. Right. You know, in different eras of his career. And Susan pointed out, she said, you and Lisa got the more human prince. And it was like, yeah, mm. we did, because he wasn't quite... He wasn't quite a star when I started with him, and he was. he had so much stardom, and he was kind of back to being just a person so it was it was interesting and the fact that they told me so much of what I taught him which I would have never known he carried as far as he could until the technology just wouldn't support it anymore like there was no tape anymore so he couldn't he couldn't do the things that we did with tape and so he had to change but Lisa looked down. She said, "You have taught you taught him so much that he continued to use." And mm. I thought, oh. but I would have never known that. It's not like we chatted about anything. <laughs> he wasn't calling you up and filling you oh, in. Oh no, 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 <laughs> no, <laughs> no. Yeah, I was looking at the songs of 1999 because, believe me, I don't remember some of this stuff. You know, it's what 35 years ago. Susan pointed out with sleep deprivation, your memory is one of the first things that go. But I was looking at the songs and the actual hits like 1999 and Little Word Corvette, he brought in from Minneapolis. I think Don Batts probably cut those and um, he brought them from his home studio. And then I think by the titles that I had done everything else. Yeah, I was so. just looking at all of this, too, to get ready for our chat today. And it's interesting, you know, you started really working with him basically as this chapter was opening where he was headed towards this new album, although we didn't know yet it was 1999. And, no. and he was creating so much material in late 81, early 82 with you. And all of a sudden this album emerged. <laughs> Well, and he told somebody that he didn't expect it to be a double album. It just kept on happening. And during that period, he was also writing songs for Vanity Six, and he was writing songs for The Time. So we were doing those albums. I never knew what we were working on. I didn't know what was going on the album that we were actually working on until we assembled it. Because Morris would come in, and that's when we cut International Lover. In fact, they're putting out ones where he was talking to me and Morris. Yes. On, and it's really funny, because I had kind of remembered it at the time. I remembered, I had my back, I was loading a tape machine, and he, you know, he said, did you hear that, Peggy? And I, and I laughed, you know. Because with him, there was never any, um, you know, as sexual as his songs were, as sexy as his songs were, there was never that banter with us, which, you know, you're kind of used to as a woman in the studio. It gets pretty raw and gritty sometimes. And it was never that with him. He was very respectful. So, you know, the fact that he even kind of pointed that out was kind of funny because it was at a part where it said, you know, your seat can be used for a flotation device or something like that. And it was like, <laughs> yeah, I get it. <laughs> Got that. Got it. What else do you so, remember about him and Morris working together in the studio? They always had a good time. You know, and I think they would um, develop Morris's character together, you know, because that was Prince. I mean, you know, that was all Prince. I mean, it was Morris, too. But with the time, there was a lot of banter, and it was it was fun. It was like the guys were around, you know. 
And he and Morris were pretty good friends, I think. Yeah. And I never knew. It was funny because you never knew who was coming in or who was in town or what was going to happen. It was, wasn't like he came in and said, okay, we're going to work on the time stuff. We just started working. And then I would say, can you give me a title? Can you, you know, and then I would, I would sometimes fill in the track sheets and the legend on the tape box after I figured out who it was going to, because it wasn't like he talked to you about it. Huh. In fact, I was surprised that after controversy, you know, most people say it was great working with you. Hope to see you again. Goodbye. You know. Right. And there was none of that. I thought oh, I'll never see this guy again because I really kind of got in his face and said, you know, I can't understand you. You can't just mumble instructions to me. I've, I've got to, I've got to hear you if you want me to work for you. And I thought, you know, I was way too abrupt with him. I'll never see him again. And then they called me and said he's coming in. And he requested you, and it was like, "Doe, okay." <laughs> so, and that's when we started working on 1999, and it was just—it was grueling hours. I have never worked so long or so hard for anybody in my life. And I remember we were finished with 1999; it had gone out, and we were working on something else. And I was standing next to him, and I said, "Do you like my work?" And he kind of like looked at me like, "Well, you're here, aren't you?" And it's like, "Oh." So that's as much as you ever got. Right. If you were there, then, you know, of course, he liked your work. But he never said hello, goodbye, see you later. It was great working with you. You know, how's your life or anything like that. So right. I usually connect with people, even if it's for a short amount of time. The, those three months were like family because you see them more than they see their own family. And then they go away and a new one comes in and you either relate or not relate, but you're living with them for the next three or four months. And then, you know. He wasn't like that. I didn't have any idea that we were connected. <laughs> so it was interesting, except that I dreamed about him and he dreamed about me. So Aww. it was like, yeah, I told him one time, I dream about you. And he said, yeah, I dream about you too. <laughs> so, yeah. Wow. <laughs> I never really found out what he dreamed about. But <laughs> Well, it sounds like it made its way into the songs. Yeah. <laughs> So I would love to take you back to kind of towards the beginning of when you two were working together. I am really just uh, very curious about this experience that he had opening for the Rolling Stones at the Los oh. Angeles Coliseum. And I was very interested to hear from you that you were working with him right around that time. So could you just tell me again about what you remember about, you know, how he reacted to that, what he was like around that experience? I had experienced some pretty rough times with him when he was in a really bad mood. And uh, didn't have anything to do with me, but it was usually, I don't want to say taken out on me, but yeah, you didn't make a mistake on those days or you never heard the end of it. Hmm. So um, I remember I didn't even know he was in town and I had no idea that he was going to open for the Rolling Stones. I would have thought that was a horrible idea personally, but his managers came running in the studio the next morning and said it was a really bad night. Just be prepared. He's going to be in a bad mood. He was booed off the stage, and they threw things at him at the Stones concert. And I went, oh, my God. But he wasn't bad. I mean, he, he was—I don't really remember much about the day except they came running in to prepare that it was a really <laughs> day. So maybe I was prepared for the bad day, and then it didn't turn out so badly. But um, I, I read about it later. He didn't talk about it. He, it was just one of those days where he was quiet, which were, there were a lot of them. You just never knew what was going on. It wasn't like you could say, he want to chat. Right. <laughs> you got something going on you want to talk about? No. Right. So you just dealt with what, what the day was, and sometimes he was chatty, and sometimes days would go by, and you wouldn't exchange more than a few words. Yeah. Except when it came to music. Well, it's interesting to me, you know, that he had that experience, which was just clearly a pivotal moment for him and something he had never experienced before. And then, you know, he had to go out on the road and support this new record yeah. controversy coming out. But then he was already working, it seemed, on the next album, or at least churning through songs that could be on the next album. And the earliest track on the super deluxe edition from The Vault that we're hearing that you worked on was captured just a couple months later, December 8th, 1981. I'm wondering what you remember about Rearrange. Oh, I don't remember. Is that, the, <laughs> is that the actual title of it? Yes. Yeah, see, the thing is with him is we cut so much that I never saw. And, you know, I would come in and start setting up, and they would 
buzz me in the studio and say, pack it up. He's gone back to Minneapolis. So some of this stuff never came out. I mean, if I heard it, I might remember it. Right. But you got to remember, too, that sometimes I would stop him and say, can you give me a title? Right. And he would just throw out anything because he didn't have a title yet. But I needed it for the record company and for the studio. So, you know, I can hear something and it's like, well, it changed titles. Sure. But, um, yeah, I don't remember that one. Okay. I was looking at the list last night of what was on 1999, and I thought, oh, yeah, we, oh, yeah, we did that. We did that. <laughs> so it's all but the, the two hits, because I always get called about 1999, and I always say, I didn't cut that. Right. cut in Minneapolis. Right. <laughs> so give somebody else credit for that. Uh, I always give Don credit for that. Yeah. So. Well, can you tell me the story of how Colleen ended up being one of the titles? Yeah, that was... Um, we, I think we were working because we were working in Studio 3, which was his favorite because it was all enclosed. It had a bathroom, and uh, it opened right out to the basketball court. You didn't have to go through <laughs> any people or anything. So he loved that because it was so isolated. It was kind of nice. But uh, one night, I just got, I got tired of always scrambling to figure out what we had worked on or try to figure out a line in the in the chorus that would be the title, you know? So he started to leave, and I said, wait, 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 wait. What's this name of this song? I said, I need it for Warner Brothers, and I need it for the studio. And he just had that little smile on his face, and he said, what's your middle name? And I said, Colleen. And he said, write that down. So, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so it, it never went. It was one of those songs that didn't, I think he tried to revisit it, and it just didn't happen. You yeah. know, it was one of those songs that just didn't go anywhere. And he did that a lot. Yeah. So I always figured once they opened that vault and he started getting those tapes out that I'd be on stuff forever. Right. So, yeah. I mean, we cut so much that never came out. Well, what's that like for you now? I mean, to be so woven into the story of Prince in this era that your name is literally on one of the I songs. I know. Well, and, and I figured that. I mean, I really did. Because even after I stopped, I stopped because I was pregnant. I got married and, and started a family. And um, he sent me a platinum record after I was, you know, already out of the business and a mom. And so I figured that a lot of the stuff we cut together was on that record. So, yeah, I mean, it just I just figured for a while things would just keep coming out with my name on them. Literally. Yeah, yeah literally. <laughs> And then, then, you know, we cut that, how come you don't call me anymore? It took me years to find it because it was the B-side to 1999. Tell me that story. This is such a good story. Oh, it was so funny. He came in one night and um, he said, what do you drink? And I said, you mean alcohol? And he said, yeah. And I said, Remy Martin. And he said, okay, order a bottle of Remy Martin and a bottle of Aste Spumante. And I said, oh, Prince, you don't, no, you don't want me to drink. And he said, order it. So I did. There was a deli that delivered and put it on the work order. And we had a couple of drinks, and he started playing the piano. And uh, we cut this song, and I kept thinking, I knew I was a little buzzed, and I kept thinking, this is really amazing. But it went out on a B-side, and I usually didn't get B-sides. You know, I mean, I got the album or whatever, but I never got a B-side. I never got singles. So I didn't really know if it was that good, and I looked for it for years, and finally the kids and I um, were at Amoeba Records, and I went upstairs, and there was Prince's B-sides, and it was on there, a cassette with his B-sides on it. And I took it home, and I <laughs> listened to it, and I went, yes, it was great. So, yeah, I think we did two takes, mm -hmm. and they're were, they were releasing the other one that we did, too. Yeah, so. and it's slightly longer, and it gives me chills. Right. It's I think it's I kind know. of a showstopper on the on the vault release, and I mean it's just so raw, and it's so unlike all the other material mm -hmm. that he was doing. Just to hear him alone at the piano. I mean, what was that mm -hmm. like for you to just be sitting there watching this? Well, you know, I got to hear a lot of that. You know, you always had to keep an eye on him because you never knew what he was going to do. You <laughs> never knew when he was going to say, "Throw up fresh tape. This is a song." So when he would go out, like most musicians would go out and relax, and you could go out and get something to eat or go to the bathroom or something, you kept your eye on him because it could all of a sudden be full-on session. So there were times that he would just go out and play the piano, and I loved that. Mm. There's a great YouTube video of Soundcheck with him in um, Japan. And it's one of those things where it's, the camera's kind of going around him, and he's, he's playing Summertime 
which is that Gershwin song. Oh, yeah. It's just like I just kind of melt and get all dreamy-eyed because that's <laughs> what I remembered, you know, is just watching him play the piano, and I just loved it. He was so amazing on any instrument he picked up, but the piano was something that was very pleasing, and he loved my piano sound. And I can always pick out my piano sound. I think, oh, we had a beautiful Steinway in Studio 2 that he liked. We had a great one in Studio 3, too, but Studio 2 was the one we cut that one on. What did he like and about the way you captured it, do you think? I have no idea. I just, <laughs> I, he liked my piano sound. He loved my vocal sound. And um, everything else was basically flying by the seat of my pants. I got a drum sound in five minutes because he would go out and play the drums. And it was like, oh, no, oh, no. And sure enough, he'd say, throw up some fresh tape. Come on, Peggy. You know, and so you'd throw the board over and patch as fast as you could and EQ as fast as you could and get levels as fast as you could because he would say you're blowing the groove if you didn't get it down on time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, oh, my God. So some of the stuff technically for the sounds I'm not real proud of, but, you know, he taught me so much about if the song is there, it doesn't really matter, you know, if it technically is perfect. We mix it for our peers so that we're not criticized. But most of the public hears what he wants them to hear, I felt like. Because he certainly didn't give you time to do much of anything. He wasn't real picky. If it was there, it was there. If the song was there, it was... And I've heard, if you hear hits now, they're, ooh, there's a mistake. Ooh, ouch. You know, or they get off beat or something. But it's the feel of the song. Right. So, And I think that's what he always captured. And it was always fresh because we usually cut it, started it in the morning, and finished it that night and sometimes revisited it the next day like when Dove's Cry was a two-day thing because he walked it back it peaked that night and then he came in the next day and he walked it back and started removing instruments because it was way overproduced mm. and I got to hear that the original one that he took home that night and it was like yeah no wonder I shut down I had blazing guitars and synthesizers and and he just walked it back I said he unproduced it until it was kind of down to the bare bones and then right that was it Wow. Do you think yeah. it's fair to say there were points where he was writing a song a day? Oh, yeah. Oh, I think more than that. I just think it was just he would have so many ideas going. You know, I I told you about when he dreamed a song. Manic I mean, Monday. I just think, yeah, I just think he was always, it was just always going through him, especially at that time. He was so prolific at that time. And that's why he had two other bands is because he had more material that didn't really fit maybe with him so he wrote for other people he had just so much in him that he wanted to get out can you describe a little bit more of the process you said you know you'd often finish a song you know start it in the morning and finish it that night but walk me through just kind of how he would approach putting a song together in the studio sometimes he would walk in with lyrics with a lyric sheet like uh, written on you know, hotel stationery or something that he had probably thought about that night or that morning or whatever, or dreamed, whatever he <laughs> did. And then sometimes he would just come in and start playing. I mean, sometimes he would walk in with lyric sheets and go straight to the drum machine and, and start. Sometimes he would walk out to the piano and start playing and then walk in and program the drum machine or whatever. And then we would build from there. And then sometimes he would just go out and play the piano. I think Sometimes It Snows in April was one of those that he just went out and started playing the piano mm -hmm. and recorded it. And, I, and it's weird because I listened to that song and I remember cutting it. It was towards the end of my career and I was exhausted. <laughs> but I just remember thinking, that's a beautiful song. And, you know, the piano was so gorgeous in it. And then, you know, I heard it again and I went, oh, it's like you're so exhausted you really can't care Right. And then, like, some of the stuff that I hear later once I'm rested, it's like, oh, my God. Then you can get excited, you know. I mean, it's just like then it, it kind of moves you. But when you're that tired, you're just literally picking up your cleanest, dirty clothes and dragging yourself down to the studio. I mean, right. seriously, it's like I was just exhausted working with him because he never stopped. Which it is was, why you taught him to record his own vocals, right? Yeah, I did. <laughs> And everybody appreciated that. <laughs> I told you in Minneapolis when I did that panel with a lot of his engineers. Yeah. 
I told them that I was losing focus because, you know, after 15 hours and punching vocals, you really have to concentrate. And I was just so tired and losing focus, and um, I would miss a punch. And he'd get upset with me, and I said, you know what, you can do this. And I said, I can set you up in here, and you can punch yourself. And he said, really? And I said, yeah, with headphones, if you don't mind singing in headphones. So that's what we would do, and I would hang the mic over and pull it down. And the engineers all leaned on the table and said, that was you. Oh, my God, thank you. That was the only time we got a break. (laughs) (laughs) And I was talking to Susan Rogers in New York when we were... um, we were walking down the street, and she said, I remember one of the last things you told me is that coffee <laughs> coffee loses its caffeine about a half an hour after um, you make it. So don't make him a fresh pot of coffee if, you've got it, <laughs> if you want to go home. <laughs> and one of the engineers um, at Paisley said that, you know, like it'd be like two or three in the morning, and he'd say, make me a cup of, he stopped drinking coffee, make me a cup of Earl Grey tea. And so they'd go into the kitchen, and they'd pull the little tab off the decaf Earl Grey tea, and they'd staple a full caffeinated um, tag on it so he wouldn't know it was decaf. (laughs) Please go to sleep. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and Uh, even, you know, like I'd say, you know, I'm kind of hungry. Should we order some food? And he he would say, you're just trying to make me sleepy, so I'll go home. It's like, (laughs) no, actually, I'm kind of (laughs) hungry. But would you go home? Yeah. He told me the only reason he did go home was because he knew I had to sleep. I was like, really? So I get to go home for six hours so so I can sleep. Oh, wow. Yeah, and and I read about geniuses because I was confused on he would have this huge period where it was just like no sleep and writing and writing and writing. And then he would have this period where he would call the session at noon and then he wouldn't show up till like seven at night. And it's like, oh, my God. So I'd be there at 11 mm. because I had to be there early and clean the machines and make sure everything was working. And just, you know, I, I didn't have to align usually, but I had to check the machines because just in case, you know, they got out of alignment. So sometimes a half an hour earlier um, instead of a whole hour. But I was there early and I would you know, with you, you drink a bunch of coffee in order to get ready for your day, and it's like, and then you wouldn't show up, and wouldn't show up, and you're janked out on coffee, and you can't even sleep and wait for him. And he did that for four or five days, and I finally said, you know what, you're killing me here. I can't do this because then he would work till four in the morning, mm. and then he would do it again. I said, what time do you want to start tomorrow? We'll start at noon. And finally, I said, really? I said, because this is killing me. And he said, well, nobody will wake me up. That's when he was coming down with bodyguards and, Mm. you know, had the limos and stuff like that. And um, I said, I'll wake you up. And he said, okay. So he gave me the number right into his bedroom. And he said, call me when you're set up down here. So I said, you know, (laughs) with a real cheery voice, I'll set up. (laughs) And he he would come down kind of faded and tired looking. And that lasted for about three days. And then he went home. (laughs) It's like, yeah, keep my hours and see how that works. (laughs) So he would go through these huge periods where he wouldn't sleep and he would just write, write, write. And then he would go through a period where there was a lull. And that's what I read about geniuses. That's kind of what they do is they have this huge peak where they are really prolific, and then they kind of, you know, you have to rebuild, and that's kind of what would happen. Then he would go back to Minneapolis usually, and then it would go back on the road. Wow. (laughs) That's amazing. That's actually kind of comforting to hear that he did have some times that he was resting. (laughs) Yeah. he didn't just, you know, three hours a night all the time. Yeah, and he'd go home, and I think then he would, you know, probably sleep for a few days, and then he would start organizing parties and all that kind of stuff. Because I'd get calls from Alan Leeds saying, you know, we've got a truck, and he's going to have a party at First Avenue, and we're flying you out to record it. It's like, okay. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) It was amazing. I never got to go. In fact, I didn't get to go to the premiere of Purple Rain because there was a party at the Palace, I think. I think that was where it was. And so... I got my dress and my high heels. I was all ready to go to a movie premiere. I've never been to one. And uh, Alan called me and said, so we got a truck. So after the movie premiere, you'll be recording the party. So I had to spend the premiere in the truck. Oh, man. that for the party. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had to take my high heels off to walk around in the truck. <laughs> I was really bummed. It's like, dang. <laughs> Aww. Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, I'm looking at some of the dates here on on this, especially on the vault material, and oh. it's really incredible to look at January of 1982. There's at least five or six songs that you recorded with him at Sunset Sound. It looks like he had about three weeks off from the controversy tour, so he must have just been yeah. holed up. As you're talking about just this right. day, you know, daily churning. But I'm wondering mm-hmm. if you remember about some of the other songs that were recorded in this era. That was when he cut All the Critics Love You in New York. Mm-hmm. Do you I remember, remember that? that? Mm-hmm. It was one of those songs where um, I was just kind of going, huh. By the time he put his lyric on, then the song kind of came together for me because that's a big part of it for me. I didn't really pay much attention to the music. We, you know, I was just concentrating on making sure that he had everything he needed and anticipating every move that he made. But that one and the um, Something in the Water was another one that I thought was really interesting music. And then he put the lyric to it. And I was like, huh, okay, so this makes sense. So I can't tell you much about it. I just remember once I listened to the lyric, I thought, huh, okay, I get this now. Yeah. So the weird little, you know, the weird little synthesizer thing and Something in the Water. It's like, okay, this makes sense now. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And then January 11th must be your birthday. Yeah, and that song's coming out. Warner Brothers is putting it out. It's like, really? That's my song. Can you tell me that story? Yeah. They called me, and it was my birthday, and I thought, oh, geez. He doesn't, you know, I can't even get my birthday off. And so he comes in, and he was dressed different. He had jeans, which he never wore jeans. He had high heel black leather boots, a white T-shirt. He never wore a white T-shirt, and a black leather motorcycle kind of punk jacket. And I was like, huh. He looks different. And we start cutting this song, and we start it in the morning, and it was a rockabilly song. So the outfit made sense and everything like that. And so at the end of the night, it was late. I think it was like, I don't know, 11 or 12. And I thought, okay, well, now (laughs) there's no birthday for me today. So anyway, he starts to leave, and I always made him a cassette of the mix. And um, I handed in the cassette, and I was just cleaning up and doing some patches and stuff like that. And... uh, he walks to the door and he looks over at me and he smiles and he tosses the cassette over his shoulder and he says, happy birthday. And he walked out and I just stood there with my mouth open. It was like, oh, <laughs> I mean, he didn't even wait for a response, a thank you or anything. It was just that was my happy birthday song. So it's coming out. Warner Brothers is releasing it. So I can't say I have an unreleased Prince <laughs> song anymore. Right. Bummer. <laughs> but uh, then everybody else will get to hear it, too. Right. It's called You're All I Want. Well, and you still have the cassette that he handed you. Uh, I do. I do. That's really special. Yeah, I know. I know. And Susan Rogers was so cute. She said, Peggy, Prince loved you. And it was like, wow, he did? Mm. (laughs) And she said, of course he did. He said, you've been loved by some incredible men. It was like, oh, (laughs) thanks. (laughs) He said, Prince loved you. Oh, that's so sweet. I just found out that Elton John, uh, Dwayne called me and said Elton John mentioned me in his new autobiography. And I went, really? He said, yeah, chapter nine. And I went, (laughs) oh, cool. (laughs) Amazing. That was fun. Yeah. I was like, wow. That was fun. Well, I'm just so, you know, interested in this idea of you just being alone with him in the studio so often. And I'm, I'm wondering if you have any inkling of, you know, why did he prefer to mostly work alone? I think he needed people. But I think that people like him that are introverts and don't communicate well, I mean, you've got to realize, too, that he was 20, what, 23, 24 years old? Yeah. He was pretty young. He wasn't an L.A. guy. He was a Minneapolis guy. And he was he was a king in Minneapolis. But in L.A., he was just another rock star in L.A. And I, I just think that he felt comfortable with me. I didn't talk a lot. I just worked for him and um, did what he wanted. And he could create and not have to communicate, which I think was hard for him at that stage in his life. And um, I think he spent a lot of his childhood alone just making music. I think music is probably what saved him in a lot of ways. And um, I think he was more comfortable in the studio than anywhere else, but he needed an engineer. And um, I think it was Lisa Chamblay that said, you know, you blaze the trail for all of us because after you, 
there were just a string of female engineers because mm. he he liked working with females. And I we were trying to figure out why. And I think that part of it is, you know, he had some really different ideas. And um, I never said that won't work, technically. Let's just try it. If it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. You know, I mean, I, there was no ego. There was no, like, oh, tech, tech stuff that, oh, that won't work or the impedance is off or, you know, anything like that. I said, let's just try it. Some of the stuff that he put through guitar pedals, it was like, you know, nobody would do that. And then I went out and bought his same pedal board because it's like, wow, this is incredible, the sounds that he gets out of these little guitar pedals, you know, for some other kind of instrument. And I can't even remember what we put through it, but it worked. Right. So I just think that part of it was we were both, I mean, I was two and a half years into my career. It was still new and exciting for me. And um, whatever he wanted to try was fine. And um, I just, you know, I had ideas that, that he would say something that he wanted and I would have ideas and hook it up for him. And if it didn't work, it didn't work. And if it did, it did. In fact, I told this story at the AES convention and it was on 1999. And I said, I would have never told this story when he was alive because I would never have lived it down. (laughs) But we were doing crossfades, which is where you play the two tapes and then you record it onto another tape and you cut it in so that it has that perfect fade out and fade Mm -hmm. in, right? But he had brought a different format from Minneapolis. So he had a two-track quarter-inch, and I was we were recording to half-inch two-track. So I had six machines in there to accommodate whatever we were doing, so two playback and one record of whatever combination we were doing. But I only had four inputs to the wall. So if we were changing it, I really had to think about what was going on. And so it was late at night. I don't know. It was like four in the morning. And we did this crossfade, and he said, Oh, that doesn't sound right. He said, I'm just going home. I'm too tired. And I think it was my idea to do the crossfades. He didn't like technology when it didn't work and when it was, you know, too complex or anything. So I was really trying hard to make this work for him. And um, he left and I was like, oh, God, you know, I was just deflated. And I got home and I was laying down. And I went, oh, oh, my God. So when I had taken the other machine, because it was really hard to figure out exactly, you know, like what we were cutting into was going to be the master and playing back and everything like that. So when I had plugged the machine in, I had accidentally crossed left and right because I had crossed my hands for some reason just oh. in, in my haste to do this. So I got in an hour before him. And I repatched the machine, and I re-recorded the crossfade, and I cut it in, and I waited for him to get in. And he, he came in, and he listened to it, and he said, oh, sounds good. Okay. And I went, oh, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody laughed because I said I would never have told this story when he was alive because I would have never have lived it down. <laughs> That's when you'd get the phone call. <laughs> right. Exactly. I said, but now I can tell this story. It was just like, oh, my God, because I was pretty new, too. You know, I mean, I had done a couple of first chair engineering. And with him, it was more I was a staff engineer. It was a lot of engineering, a lot of assisting. And then you were wearing a lot of hats. But right. he was also... He was the producer, he was the artist, and he was the engineer. So it was just, you know, we were both doing it. He needed me, but he also knew a lot himself. You know, I taught him, you know, the EQ. Sometimes he would just sit back and he'd say, get a sound on this, and I would do, and he'd say, okay, great, I like that, you know. But as an engineer, you're usually sitting in the chair where I was sitting behind him or beside him, you know. So it was a different working combination than usual. And then when he was recording out in the studio, of course, I was the engineer. But, you know, when he would come in and listen to stuff and I would do all the technical stuff, but he could run the board. In fact, um, David Leonard and I, we were married at the time and we designed a board for his house because we knew exactly what he liked and what he didn't need. He didn't need, you know, certain things on the board, but he needed certain things. And we designed a Domitio API console, a custom console for him. And Dave Hampton told me that it's one of the only ones that was still working at Paisley. Oh, wow. Yeah, and that was for his home studio. And David and I were supposed to go to Paisley and be his engineers, and I thought that would be perfect because, you know, he would kill one engineer, which he almost (laughs) killed Susan. But um, 
it just it took so long to build Paisley by the time you know I was pregnant and on my way to being a mom so right. that didn't work but um yeah I mean we we had designed that board and Dave said oh yeah it's a great board it's still working wow that's yeah. amazing yeah. so that went into the Kiowa Trail House in Chanhassen yeah okay it, originally and then it came to Paisley right and it was I don't know what room it was you know I've never seen Paisley and last time I was in Minneapolis, they said, oh, my God, you've never seen Paisley. But it was so jam-packed with everything we were doing, I never made it over there. Wow. So I'd really like to see it. I guess it's different without him there, but right. I'd still like to see it. You were talking a little bit earlier about kind of the vibe of him and Morris in the studio. I was wondering if you could describe him and all these women in the studio. What was it like when Jill Jones was in there, when Lisa was in there, and Vanity later on? Um, it wasn't that different because, for me, it was business when we were in the studio, it was about the studio. There wasn't a lot of partying or anything like that going on. Like, most sessions in the 80s were big parties. Right. Especially on Friday and Saturday night, people would come down, and it was it always made me laugh to see these girls walking around in high heels. I mean, the studio is dangerous. It's got cords and different <laughs> levels, and, you know, it's got big snakes going through it and heavy doors. Right. And these women are walking around in high heels. And usually, you know, partying high or something like that. But with Prince, if Jill came down, it was to do a part. If Lisa came down, it was to do a part. You know, when we were doing the Vanity Six, I mean, I was aware that he was involved with Vanity. I was aware that he was involved with Jill. And I was aware of the people that he was involved with. But it wasn't what was up front when we were in the studio. Yeah. I mean, I was aware of it, but it wasn't the main focus when we were in the studio. It was business when we were in the studio. And when we were cutting the music, it was usually just Prince and I. And then they would come in for the vocals or something like that. Mm. I mean, the time it was different because he would do the basic and then they would play on a lot of it. So they would come in and out. And that was fun. Sometimes. Sometimes it was awful. But, <laughs> right. I mean, you know, just because. <laughs> in fact, I think it was Dwayne that told me the day he came in with such an attitude. And I could hear him walking. And I, and I peeked out and I went, oh, God. <laughs> and he had... <laughs> Had no shirt on. <laughs> oh boy! He had a bandana. He had a bandana tied around each knee and one around his head. Wow! And he had two of his high top pants, uh, two of the buttons undone, and he was walking fast and hard. And I was like, "Oh God!" And he came in, and he had such a bad attitude. And Dwayne told me that someone, not me, but someone, had lost one of the tapes and he was furious but it wasn't me but I was the one that got the brunt of that mm. and I remember that Jimmy Jam at one point looked over and kind of looked at me like Ooh, sorry it's you but so glad it's not one of us to be you know just ridden hard that day it's right. just like you know you just better not even do anything wrong that day right and even if you were doing everything right you were getting you were too slow or you were too this or you were too that and it was like I just remember gritting my teeth going oh god let this day be over with <laughs> <laughs> and he never apologized you know it, it wasn't like he apologized and said sorry it was a crappy day or anything so you just dealt with it and Moved hope the on. next day wasn't like that <laughs> right <laughs> And it usually wasn't. But, you know, kind of it always kind of left you on that, that edge of, ooh, what do I need to be prepared for today? <laughs> right. You know, like one day he walked in and he said, I was all set up, ready to go. And he had a full suit on and a hat and everything. He looked really, really good. And he said, let's go see a movie. And I went, oh, no, you, you just go ahead. I'll, I'll just be here when you get back. And he said, Oh, Peggy, I got a limo for us and everything. And I went, <sighs> okay. And he said, and, and he pulls this lace, this black lace handkerchief out of his pocket. And it was a pair of girls' lacy underwear. And he said, and, I got a pair of girls' panties right here. And he stuck them back in. <laughs> we get in the limo and we go see a movie. And it was like an indie movie um, called Diva at the time. It was all subtitles. But, <laughs> you know, it's just like, okay. And I'm in jeans and he's in this beautiful gorgeous suit and it's like oh, and jeans and tennis shoes and it's like well, keys hanging on my belt you know because that's that was my job <laughs> it's like oh, okay so yeah we went and got we went to see a movie and then came back and worked all the rest of the night wow. I can't even remember what we worked on but you know he did stuff like that he was very spontaneous he had the studio locked out so it was his 24 7 anytime he wanted and because he didn't really 
have a producer and he didn't really have musicians that he was paying. His budget was his budget, you know. He was everything wrapped into one. He did what he wanted. But I think he was most at home in the studio. I think he loved being in that environment because I know wherever he was on tour, if they had a day off, he would find a studio in that city. That's what he loved to do. Well, it's so interesting to think about so many of the tracks on 1999 were recorded by just you and him alone. You know, even Mm -hmm. Automatic just has, as you mentioned, Jill Jones and Lisa, but they were only just coming in at the end. I mean, do you think it's fair to say 1999 is the sound of of you and Prince working together in the studio? Yeah, except for the two biggest hits are not mine, (laughs) (laughs) which is kind of like, ooh. I mean, we worked on him, but yeah, that that was us. He was such a different kind of person in the studio that I didn't really understand who he was until he took me out on the road for that tour. As a Christmas present, he gave me two days on the road of the 1999 tour, and it was New Year's Eve in Dallas and then the next night in Houston, and I was completely blown away at his performance. I was just literally like weak in the knees. I thought, oh my God, I get it now. I never got who he was, you know, the the outfits and the attitude and the everything. It was always him. He just got to really um, exude that on stage. So when I saw him perform, I had a whole different level of appreciation for him. Then I then I got him and then our, our relationship changed a little bit for me mm. because Unfortunately, I respected him, and he, t- he took advantage of that. <laughs> no, I'm not saying unfortunately, but I saw his talent. And then, you know, like for Purple Rain, he came in one day, and he was playing the piano, and he said, I'm going to make a movie, and I was like, okay, you know, it's like, whatever. And he gets up, and he leaves, and he comes back with a movie. And then we were doing a soundtrack, which became really involved, you know, and two machines and string players and, oh, my. In fact, I was telling a story. We were talking about him on this panel saying that you just had to be ready for whatever creative inspiration moved him at the moment. I mean, literally, it was like any time you had to be ready for anything because he could switch gears all of a sudden. So it's midnight, and we're working on Purple Rain, and he comes out, and he said, Peggy. I need some string players. And I thought, okay. And he said, now. And I went, oh, my God, it's midnight. I mean, these these are like union. I mean, the string sessions I had done were huge, organized union sessions. And I thought, oh, my God, what am I going to do? And I had just worked with a a band that had a viola player. Her name was um, Novi Novog. And I thought, God, maybe Novi will do it. So I called her up at midnight, and I said... (laughs) do you want to play on a Prince record? And she said, absolutely. And so I said, do you know a cello player? And she said, yeah. And they came down there at like one in the morning and worked till three or four. And there they are. Wow. (laughs) Okay. So you just made it happen. And I think that's what he, you know, liked about us is there was no attitude. It's like, okay, we'll get it done. If it can possibly be done, we'll do it for you. Yeah. And I think he also liked the fact that women... We're multitaskers, you know. We can think of food and we can think of what you need, but we can also think of what needs to happen in the studio. We can do it all. And I think that's part of what, you know, made him like us because we could do it all and it could only be the two of us and he was fine with that. I think he enjoyed that. I mean, I think he liked the solidarity of that for him. Yeah. He liked the solitude. It's so interesting to think about, too, you know, as you mentioned, going to see him at the very end of 1982 and then... It was just, a, uh, I think, a month or two later that Little Red Corvette then entered into the top ten and became a yeah. hit. And then by the end of that spring, he was in heavy rotation on MTV and, and really yeah. experiencing this moment. I mean, did you experience any kind of shift in being around him, or did you notice anything different, you know, as that was happening? Uh, yeah, of course I did. You know, then he started coming in with a bit more of an attitude and— when he came in, um, he had a limo painted purple, and it was like, oh, really? You know, it's just like, yeah, really? And he had bodyguards. Because when I first started working with him, I think it was him and Jesse Johnson who came running into the studio, and they were out of breath, and they were laughing because they had been recognized by fans and chased, and that had never happened, you know, to them before. So <laughs> it was all new, and it was just happening. And then after 1999... 
then the bodyguards came, then the kind of entourage. Then it became more of a, a show in the studio, sometimes. But sometimes, because a lot of Purple Rain, it was just the two of us. So, you know, you just never knew what you were getting. But you also had a different artist. He was becoming very well known, and he was trusting himself, and he was he was wearing his his title very well. But that's when the motorcycle came in, you know, the purple motorcycle. He rode that into the studio and stuff like that. So, you know, it was just, it was a different guy. When I first met him, he had to borrow his manager's car to get to the studio. (laughs) And then he would, you know, after 1999, and I think during Purple Rain, he had a purple BMW that appeared. He would have it trucked in from Minneapolis and Oh. I, actually, it was a black BMW. It was a beautiful one. Oh. He got stopped one night leaving the studio. And I guess in California, you can't have the driver's side window blacked out as black as he had it. You know, the front two windows, you can't have blacked out. So he was stopped by the police. And they said, where are you coming from? And he said, from the studio. And they said, do you do country music? And he looked at him like, uh, <laughs> and he said... Have you seen Willie Nelson? No, I don't do country music. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. But um, <laughs> I think he got a ticket or a fix-it ticket or something like that. But <laughs> Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I don't do country music. <laughs> well, Peggy, this has been so wonderful. Um, we've covered kind of all the territory I was hoping to cover today, but is there anything else that you want people to know about, you know, just who Prince was and, and what it was like working with him in this period? Just, he was so talented. And just from his songs, you know, it took me a while because in the studio, you've got a real job to do. And um, it was a big job to be doing on your own. And um, it wasn't until later that I could really listen to his songs and appreciate them because I was so focused on just making the session work. And then when you could relax and listen to his songs, you realize that so much of his heart was in those songs and where he was and like sometimes it snows in April it's just gut-wrenching you know of how much he feels but you wouldn't know that from him how deeply he was feeling and I think that the music was his outlet for that for all of his communication his music was his outlet absolutely I mean, I just appreciate him so much for there were people in the studio that would like say, you really work with that guy because he was different. You know, I mean, he dressed different. Most people schlub down to the studio and, you know, sweatshirt and jeans or whatever, you know, and he was always dressed up and playing basketball in high heels. (laughs) And then there were some musicians that I really respected that would take me aside and say, oh, my God, he's a genius. And I said, yes. Mm. I mean, it was like, because there were three studios there. So there was quite a mix of artists. And a lot of the musicians that I really respected got him and thought he was genius. And I thought he was a genius, too. But, you know, he was certainly different. His look was different and his sound was different. And the way he worked was different. He worked alone. He didn't have anybody to bounce off and tell him he was doing something wrong. Not wrong, but, you know, something like a producer or his managers tried to. And he said, they don't play it. They don't play it. They mm-hmm. tried to get Little Red Corvette. They said, you know, because in and out around your leg and pocket full of Trojans and stuff like that. And one of the managers, I think it was Steve Fornoli, came in and said, you know, Kiss isn't going to play that because of that. And he said, then they won't play it. That's fine. So that was the thing is he was everything. He was the boss of everything. It was all him. And I I really respected that. I think about that a lot, that his ability to put up these barriers or boundaries, I guess is a better word for it. Yeah, boundaries. Really allowed him to be, as you mentioned, just so pure and vulnerable in his work. It's because he created that space. And I'm sure insecure, you know, about if he was doing it the right way. And that was something that I saw in When Doves Cry, you know, because it was like it got it got so big and just so produced that I shut down. It was like, okay, this one's way over the top. <laughs> and then the next day he came in and he started just taking stuff away. And when he was on his own, I was kind of out and about and around. And I think we finished When Doves Cry at like seven in the morning. By that time, at the end of the night, he had punched the bass out, and he said, nobody's going to believe I do this. And he punched it out, and he said, lay it down. 
And then he left with a cassette. I think it was like 7, 7.30 in the morning. So that was two solid days of Wind Dove's mm. Cry, which was really different for us. And I remember listening to it and it just like moving me. And I ran up and got the receptionist and I said, you got to hear this song we just cut. And she reminded me after he passed that I had done that. And I went, oh, that's right. Because, you know, she got in at eight, so I was still cleaning up. And I grabbed her hand and I said, you've got to listen to the song. Oh. I said, yeah. So, I mean, some of his stuff, you didn't ever show that you were moved by his music because he would laugh at you. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Oh, one time I was really into a beat of something. I was bouncing my, my foot and my head and I looked over and he, was, he went, <clears throat> and I was like, oh, okay. Wow. <laughs> So you didn't really ever show him that you were into anything. So you just kind of had to sit there, and, and it was like later that you could appreciate it. Wow. And show some excitement. Otherwise, he'd laugh at you. <laughs> yeah. That's rough. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Peggy, you, thank you so much. This has oh, been yeah. so great. I love and talking I, to you. And I love Minneapolis. You know, you can really see that he's their native son, and I just love that. that yeah. That everything is purple and everything is prince and everything they're really proud of him and i'm really proud of him too and i was i was very fortunate to be a part of his life yeah well i'm sure we'll get you here and i'm sure you'll go to paisley park and it'll it'll be very i don't even know the word to describe it but it'll be uh, monumental i'm sure for you to be able to see that yeah i hope i don't lose it (laughs) (laughs) i lost it the first time i went back oh i'm very sad that i let our connection you know it was hard though because his management company wasn't with warner brothers anymore and those were the people that i knew and i didn't know how to reach out yeah but the last time i saw him i brought my daughter down she was eight months old and uh, he held her and Somebody said, oh, did you get a picture? And I said, you didn't take pictures of Prince. And mm. you didn't have your phone to sneak a picture. I think I have a picture of Sheila holding her, but not Prince. Oh. Prince wouldn't let you take a picture. So, yeah, he held her and he said he really wanted kids. And I said, I've always wanted to learn to play the piano. And he oh. said, do it. And yeah. So, oh, that's so sweet. Yeah, I know. Wow. Yeah, breaks my heart. Yeah, <laughs> me too. Yeah. Well, thank you so much again. And as you know, the reissue comes out at the end of next month. And enjoy my birthday song. (laughs) Everybody. I'm so so sad. I know. (laughs) But it it was Warner Brothers, so I can't really say, wait a second. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Well, thanks for your time and and your stories. And I'm sure we'll talk again soon. Good. I want to keep him alive and his music alive. I really do. Me too. Me too. Yes. Thank you.